I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg is our host each and every week. And without further ado, Doc, how are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. And I hope you are too, Frank. Uh, you know, I, I am, and uh, as we talked off uh, off mic, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm doing fine. I don't know how our country is doing, and, and you know, the subject that you're going to hit on today is going to, I think, going to raise some eyebrows, um, but just uh, uh, a wonderful subject. Can you tell us what that is? Yes. Uh, my title for the day is Anne Frank and Porn Censorship. Because wow. a teacher was just fired here in Texas for having assigned the diary of Anne Frank for her students, her eighth grade students. Uh, so I will go into that. A great, great subject, but a great title, too. Oh, my God. And by the way, I'll just say before you start, I mean, to me, the uh, the diary of Anne Frank is one of the most important pieces of literature, uh, unintentional uh, as as a blockbuster book, of course, but uh, but such an important historical record. Uh, that's my two cents before you start. Right. Well, I think this your what you say is very well taken because this is true. <clears throat> it's it's the only surviving, as far as I know, uh, account, blow by blow account of what it is like to live under a totalitarian regime and a, and a deadly one at that, that didn't uh, give two blinks of an eye uh, uh, about killing people, um, murdering, murdering hundreds of thousands of people. Anyway, to go on with the actual program, <laughs> Uh, uh, yesterday, that is Sunday's San Antonio Express newspaper, uh, the main editorial page brought shocking news because Greg Abbott's uh, Texas, which is second in the nation after DeSantis's Florida for banning school books uh, with so-called pornographic content, has fired a teacher for assigning a book to her class with, quote, pornographic content. The teacher, an eighth-grade reading teacher in the Hampshire Fannett Independent School District in Jefferson County, Texas. The school serves three small communities, Hampshire, Fannett, and New Holland. And what was the pornographic book so heinous that it cost the teacher her job? And Frank, the diary of a young girl. Most of us are aware of Anne Frank and why her book has become a classic. She received a diary, a bound book of blank pages for her 13th birthday. In her opening sentence, she wrote, and I'm quoting her, it seems to me that later on, neither I nor anyone else will be interested in the musings of a 13-year-old schoolgirl, unquote. Her Jewish family went into hiding in Nazi-occupied Amsterdam in July 1942 in a secret annex of her father's company building. They remained hidden there for two years until the Nazi police arrested them on August 4th, 1944. As the editorial says, it has been 81 years since she wrote that passage. 79 years since she wrote the last passage, which I will later quote, and 78 years since she died at age 15 in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp 
the same camp, by the way, where my husband's own, uh, my own husband's father died. Uh, we do not know the circumstances precisely of his death in Belgen-Belsen, but, uh, but in any case, we know the Nazis murdered him. Since the book banning ha since book banning has become so frequent in Texas, it was easy to ignore yet another instance. So, like many others, I didn't notice when that eighth grade teacher was fired a month ago. However, fortunately, others did notice. The version she used was a graphic ad adaptation by Art Fulman and David Polonsky, published in 2018. It came under fire for its depictions of Anne's sexuality, where she clinically describes her genitalia and that she wants to see another girl's breasts. Before the picture book adaptation was published, complete faithful texts of the diary were attacked simply because she wrote about her sexuality, though in a, in a curious and detached way, something that most teenagers uh, would do if they were literate enough to do so uh, in their inspections of their own body, which um, at, at teenage is changing very rapidly. And, uh, and of course, the kids are curious about themselves. And so uh, they want to see themselves and compare themselves with others. The Hampshire Fanet spokesperson explaining the firing of the teacher said the book had not been approved by the district and the material was inappropriate. <clears throat> the editor of the article wonders why the explanation was not more specific. And if the material is true to Anne's writing, why it should be considered inappropriate. And Frank House, reacting to the firing, said that graphic biographies or novels are very suitable for reaching young people. <clears throat> Banning books, in this, in, in this case, the graphic adaptation of Anne Frank's diary, because of certain passages, uh, is a missed opportunity to introduce young people to Anne Frank's life story and the history of the Holocaust. And that was a quotation from the Anne Frank House. The diary is not just a curiosity written by a child. It is a powerful witness to a reality being called into question by those who wish to establish a fascist regime in this country too. It is a tribute to an extraordinary talent, a young mind that had vast potential, potential that was cut short by white supremacist race hatred and deadly action. Anne's writing is often amazing in its mature insights and is also, as in her, her curiosity about her sexuality, a witness to her teenage naivete. She is both an inquiring child and an old soul simultaneously. Here is her third to last entry, which I will read in full before going on to another book with a passage that will similarly receive condemnation. Here is the quotation. It is utterly impossible for me to build my life on a foundation of chaos, suffering, and death. I see the world being slowly transformed into a wilderness. I hear the approaching thunder that one day will destroy us too. I feel the suffering of millions, and yet when I look up at the sky, 
I somehow feel that everything will change for the better, that cruelty too will end, that peace and tranquility will return once more. In the meantime, I must hold on to my ideals. Perhaps the day will come when I'll be able to realize them." Unquote. Tragically, however, she was not able to do that. Wow. A 15-year-old wrote these lines, and eighth-grade teens should have the right to read every word in whatever form and to absorb the lessons they teach. And now, I wish to talk about my own book, published in 2021, entitled Before the Alamo, A Tejana Story. My purpose in writing the book was to illustrate in words, if not in pictures, why Texas became a state in the Union, why Anglo-Americans dominate the culture here with their mores and their language. I should say our mores and our language. For most of the 19th and 20th centuries, we fiercely suppressed the Spanish language and culture, satirizing and denigrating it, and treating the Hispanic peoples individually and in groups as less than human. They were called Mexican greasers and other terms of that sort to degrade them, and depicted as asleep under a saguaro cactus, as if they never did anything, uh, any work, anything useful. My book begins with the effects of the Battle of Medina in 1813. An illegitimate baby girl is born through the union of the pure Spanish uh, scion of a pioneer family in San Antonio. <clears throat> and San Antonio was then known as Bejar de San Antonio. Uh, named after a city in, in Spain, where a, a nobleman who was a pioneer in San Antonio was from. So she is born uh, from a, a noble family in San Antonio, the, the eldest son, and of an Indian slave woman. This girl is the protagonist of the story, and her name is Emilia uh, Santa uh, Altamirano, Emilia Altamirano. The Battle of Medina has been virtually forgotten. It's not taught in Texas schools, whereas the Battle of the Alamo is considered the beginning of Texas history. In the Battle of Medina, and of course the Battle of the Alamo took place in 1836, uh, years after, at least 50 years after San Antonio began as a city. <clears throat> and it began by it was begun by the Hispanics who were here, um, and of course it, all of Texas history is taught in schools is about the Anglo uh, people who came in after uh, 1836. Um, in the Battle of Medina, two armies met. The Texas Army of some 1,800 men fought uh, for Texas's independence from Spain as a part of the revolution begun by Father Miguel Hidalgo in 1810. So there was a revolution going on in Mexico against Spain. Um, and because the governance from across the sea was totally uh, uh, incompetent. Uh, you had, if you had a, a, a burning question, 
you either made up your own answer to it or you wrote to the king of Spain and waited for uh, uh, two months at least, a month to get over to Spain and a month to get back the answer, and probably it was more like half a year before a burning question could be answered. Uh, and so um, the, uh, the, his, the Spanish uh, people who were in, uh, in Mexico at the time lorded it over the, the Indian people and the mixed people who were called mestizos um, and tyrannized them. And so uh, Father uh, Miguel Hidalgo began a revolution then against Spain in order to have the local government and government by the people. So this was going on. Um, so the, Tex the Texan army was about 1,800 men of raw recruits mainly, uh, and the Royalist army fighting for King Fernando VII of Spain, seven, the seventh of Spain, was approximately 2,000 well-trained soldiers led by a ruthless general, Joaquin de Arredondo. The general's superior tactics trapped the rebel army and Arredondo slaughtered them to the last man. He left the, the dead bodies on the field unburied and they remain unburied to this day. <laughs> uh, some uh, attempt was made to bury some of them uh, later on, but, uh, but the actual site of this, this mass slaughter has been lost and is being looked uh, for by archaeologists at this very moment. So, um, so these people, the uh, the eighteen hundred men were slaughtered, and then General um, General Arredondo um, swept into uh, Bejar de San Antonio and killed all men, young or old, who might have rebel sympathies. He continued the slaughter throughout Texas so that those males who had not fled to New Orleans were eliminated. The women of San Antonio were cooped up in a building known as La Quinta, where they cooked and laundered clothing for the royalist soldiers. They were raped and otherwise abused by them. Texas population was reduced by two thirds. Therefore, after Mexico finally gained its independence from Spain in 1821, the state was combined with the nearest Mexican state of Coahuila because Texas lacked sufficient population to stand on its own. Then Anglo settlers began to come into Texas legitimately like uh, Stephen Austin and his 300 Anglo families or illegitimately like the squatters who simply took over land and built upon it. These were known as filibusteros or filibusters, a name adopted in our governing bodies to describe near endless speeches that disrupt the legitimate proceedings. In my novel, my teenage girl is attacked and raped by one of, of these uh, squatters. My description of the crime is realistic and would therefore, I believe, cause the book to be banned if it were ever assigned as reading for school students even at the college level, I suspect. I will read to you the passages concerned and the effects uh, on the victims. And I'm now going to have to dig out my book from under the, my cat, who is lying right straight on <laughs> the moment. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, he's begging for food, so he's very <laughs> persistent. <laughs> now, Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we first see the squatter as he shops. Um, no, he uh, he's he's shopping for tobacco actually, uh, in the mercantile store in San Antonio, where uh, our our heroine, our our hero, um, as we now call all all people who are protagonists of a book, uh, Emilia, uh, has uh, come in to help unload. Uh, a shipment of new goods coming from New Orleans. Here we go. A shadow fell across her as she stood admiring the abundance of goods. Amelia glanced up. That same bearded stranger blocked the sunlight from the door. He looked even more disreputable in full daylight than he had last night when he disrupted the fandango. He'd been ogling her. She felt it. His eyes shifted to the wooden crate, a crate of tobacco, and he turned his face aside to spit a brown stream. He spoke to her, something she understood from the tone of voice and the expression on his face rather than the words. And I should uh, point out that the Fandango that is mentioned here was a celebration of the independence of, uh, hmm. of Mexico from Spain. And this uh, this squatter, this illegitimate um, uh, settler who had just seized some land and, and built a cabin on it, um, was drunk and disorderly and uh, starting a fist fight. And Stephen Austin, who uh, was, happened to be there, uh, broke up the fight and, and took the man away. Not before he noticed Emilia, however, the man, not Stephen. Um, and, and made some kind of remarks uh, to her. So now he says, Why, hello again, Missy. You're a ripe one, ain't you? Angel's voice, this is the shopkeeper, Angel's voice came from behind her speaking English. May I help you with something, sir? Emilia stepped to one side so Angel could confront the man directly. The man's eyelids drooped. No, just passing by. He tipped his head to one side and looked her over with a smirk. See you around, sweetie. He ambled away, insolence showing in every movement. Angel appeared, apparently hadn't noticed anything amiss, but turned his back to, uh, turn, uh, turned back, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but turned back to unpacking and arranging the merchandise. <clears throat> Excuse me. So three years pass, and it, uh, and Amelia's mother's birthday is coming up, and she goes to the mercantile store to buy something for her birthday. And here we go. Uh, it's three years later, she was 14 uh, in this first scene, and, uh, and she's now 17. One of the settlers stood next to the knife counter, eyeing the knives used for butchering, chopping, paring, and the like. She gave him a quick glance as she passed, seeing a youngish man with a drooping mustache but no beard. She recognized him, Jedediah Crow, the drunk and disorderly man Stephen Austin had ousted from the hall three years ago 
only now he'd shaved off his beard. He'd been in the store a few times since then and had spoken to her in English, words she had only understood from their sinister, suggestive tone. She felt uneasy and moved away. She paused at the counter where the where feminine fripperies were displayed and pored over the rolls of ribbon, intense bright colors, reds, greens, golds, and the lavender of lilac blossoms. Any one of them would look beautiful in, Ma in Maria's coal black hair, but they were too, uh, too impractical. Her mama might, uh, might tie her hair back with one of those, but hard work would spoil it in a day, especially if she wore it in summer. Emilia knew the store had, had just received a fresh shipment of cloth and went to check on the new fabrics. The bolts of cloth for women's clothing stood together on a large table, propped neatly uh, upright against um, a wooden crate so they could be seen at eye level. A bolt of, muds, of muslin caught her eye, a pale blue background printed with tiny multicolored butterflies in a haphazard pattern. It reminded her of breezy fall days during butterfly migration. She'd buy some of that. Jedediah Crow continued to stare at the knife display as a female customer passed behind his back. He cut his eyes to the left, watching her. He'd seen her before, probably poor, dressed in a plain gray dress, gathered at the waist with a cloth belt. He watched her hips sway as she approached the center of the store. She wore sandals and trim ankles peeked out as her long skirt swished from side to side. A pretty thing, what folks hear about called a mestiza. She turned her body as she looked over the cloth on a table, standing for a moment in profile, then facing him, her eyes on the bolts of cloth before her. Glossy brown wavy hair, an oval face, high cheekbones, big brown eyes with heavy, long, dark lashes, full lips. Must be a good kisser, cute little tits, probably about 17. Bet she's good in bed. Lots of, lots of practice, brothers, father, the boys next door. These Mexicans don't have no morals and know-how. Bunch of heathen Catholics. He reached to the back of the display case and shoved at the sliding door. No lock. Good. He picked out a knife, the kind that would do for just about anything, and tested the edge on his thumbnail. The girl was just buying some of that cloth. He strolled over to the clerk. Okay, so Emilia buys the cloth, and she leaves the store, and... Uh, uh, let's see, he comes up, okay, uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, so she goes to buy the cloth. Jedediah came up behind her, stretched out his hand, holding one of the knives, and brushed his elbow against her. She want, He wanted her to know he was there. I thought I'd take this one along for the missus, he spoke in English. Senora Chavez's face showed a flash of disapproval. Her reply was in Spanish. Oh, senor, 
You shouldn't have taken it out of the showcase. I could have done that for you. He understood something of what she'd said. Oh, I didn't know. Yo no sabe, he stuttered in Spanish. So she leaves the store. And before she goes home, she decides she'll do something, to uh, something fun. Emilia had noticed a new horse in the corral on the south side of Military Plaza. Even though the sun had set some time ago, and she should be going home by now to help with the evening meal, she couldn't resist having a look at the, at the newcomer. Feeling a moment of unease, she shivered and glanced around. Not a soul moved in the whole wide plaza. She'd take a quick look and then hurry on home. She climbed the log corral fence. A sudden movement startled the horses. The new gelding snorted and reared, and the other two, uh, the other two shied. Emilia admired the new bay. He had the confirmation of a stallion, a strong muscled neck, a broad chest, and powerful haunches. He stared at her, shook his head, pawed, and snore and snorted. Smiling, she met the horse's gaze. You're a spirited one, aren't you? A footfall behind her preceded a gruff voice and an arm around her waist. He had understood her words. I'll bet you're a spirited one too, aren't you, my girl? She understood only the arm's grip and twisted to see the man, the one who'd just bought a knife. What are... I... I... Stop! Stop! Let me go! Instead, he hauled her off off the fence, despite her frightened attempt to hold onto the top rail. She let go, struck him with, with her left fist, and clawed at his face with her right hand. He cursed as blood began to come to the surface of the scratches and made a one-handed grab for her arms as she began to yell, Socorro! Socorro! Help! Help! Still holding her with one big hand, he set her on her feet long enough to punch her in the mouth. Shut up or I'll kill you. She crouched, one hand over her bleeding mouth and nose, and tried to dart away only to feel him seize the back of her skirt and haul her to him. This time he slapped her back and forth across the face with all his strength. Drops of blood from her nose flew in both directions. Emilia, momentarily stunned, sagged toward the ground. He took advantage of that, lifted her and carried her face down like a rag doll to the nearest dark recess. There he threw her on her back in the dust. With a foot on her chest, he took time to unbutton his worn buckskin pants. He also took the new knife from his scabbard. Don't know why you're resisting, Missy. You must have been laid hundreds of times by now, a Mexican girl your age. Emilia, dizzy from the blows, understood nothing of what he said, but the knife made his intentions clear. Even if he cut her, she was determined to resist. He's going to rape me. I've heard enough about that. Will, the knife, will he knife me first and rape my dead body while it's still warm? I've heard that's done, too. My only hope is to hurt him somehow. She bent both legs and kicked at his knees, hoping to unbalance him. 
Instead, he grabbed one leg, twisting it violently to the side. She yelped in pain from the stress on knee and hip. He pulled her skirt above her thighs and allowed his full weight to drop on top of her. She rocked from side to side and heaved her body, but he far outweighed her. She wondered if he even felt her movements. His left arm pinned her right, his right hand fumbled and tore at her underclothes and then assisted his entry. At the tearing pain, she screamed again for help, trying to scratch him with her left hand. She was rewarded with another double slap to the face. The laceration and the slap added to the pain of something hard and relentless pounding inside her body. She moaned in horror. Jedediah continued thrusting until within a few short minutes he reached a climax. He lay inert for a few moments and then slowly stood. God damn you, bitch. You tore my face and got my pants all bloody. Well, damn your eyes, damn my eyes. You gave me some trouble getting in. I think I got a virgin after all. His noodle knife lay beside her, glimmering in the twilight where he had dropped it while he satisfied himself. He stooped and retrieved it, carefully inserting it in his scabbard, and strode away, buttoning himself as he went. Emilia, who understood none of his words, trembled in fury, pain, and loathing, listening to his footfalls. Gasping in pain, she took stock of her injuries, then rolled over and pushed herself to her hands and knees, pulling her skirt over her lower body, still bleeding. Home seemed very far away. How can I get all the way there in this condition? Why did no one come to help me? Will I faint on the way? After a moment standing, Emilia felt more blood sliding down her legs. Her teeth had cut her lips on the inside, and she spat blood upon the ground. Her nose still uh, oozed blood that found its way into her mouth, and she spat again. Pulling up her skirt to blot her face, she saw, even in the darkness, that it was covered in dark, bloody mud, her blood, mixed with the dust where she had lain. I can't wipe my face with that. The piece of cloth, where would that be? She staggered out of the dark recess toward the corral fence. There lay the little fold of cloth, pale in the dusky light. She bent to retrieve it, shook off the dust, untied the string and blotted her face, then pressed it between her legs to stop the continued blood flow. I may not make it all the way, but I can't stay here. The enormity of what had happened overwhelmed her. What am I to do now? What did I do to attract that monster? Gritting her teeth, she limped along her sprained knee and hip, slowing her. Her mother, Maria, waited in vain for Amelia to arrive and help with the evening meal and the cleanup chores afterwards. Now, angrily scrubbing a pot, <clears throat> she wondered what could be keeping her daughter. Mama, Mama. She heard the calls and a desperate note in her daughter's voice. She dropped the pot and rushed outside. The light from the open door revealed a shocking sight. Mija, Dios mío, que pasó? Oh, my God, what happened? Emilia's mouth pained her as she spoke. Mama, a man hurt me. 
She stood trembling, not daring to run into her mother's arms for fear of coating her with blood. A wave of relief swept over her to see her strong, capable mother, and at last the tears came, making tracks through the blood and grime on her swollen cheeks, dripping on the collar of her dress. So Maria then cleans her up and consoles her as best she can and uh, eventually lies down to sleep with her daughter. Maria is a very capable human being and is modeled on an actual person that I found the history of uh, in the Ar Alamo archive. Uh, she decides she's going to take revenge for the, uh, for the assault on her daughter. So she goes into the main house because uh, she and her daughter live in a little hut in the back of the, in, of the, uh, uh, of the pioneer uh, pure Spanish nobleman's uh, house. Uh, and she goes into a room where, um, where his weapons and his work clothes are stored. She dresses in his work clothes and ties her hair uh, back behind her head and looks for all the world like a young uh, brave, an Indian brave, and then she takes one of his rifles. She goes out, she saddles one of his horses, and she, well, actually first, before she does all this, she goes to the store and finds out who it was who attacked uh, her. The woman, uh, the clerk there, uh, remembers that Jedediah Crow was there and that he rushed out shortly after Emilia had left. And so the assumption is then, the deduction is that it was Jedediah Crow who attacked her. Uh, so um, she rides out then, uh, she finds out where the cabin is and she rides out to the cabin. She approached the cabin, first at a crouch, then on her belly. She heard the clink of a harness and a male voice before she saw him. There he was, not 50 yards away. He had hitched his mule to a plow and was breaking soil, apparently for a garden plot in front of the house. A bit late for plowing, she thought, but no, there'll be no garden. I'm going to kill him. She wormed her way to the thorn bush on her left for a clearer line of sight. Propped on her elbows, she brought the stock of the loaded gun to her shoulder, and her finger found the trigger. Just then, a movement at the cabin distracted her. A woman, uh, a woman exited the front door, a toddler riding on her left hip, and a canteen in her right hand. She appeared to be 14 or 15, younger than Amelia. Dear Lord, she's just a little slip of a thing and looks to be six months along in her next pregnancy. Maria watched her as she waded through the freshly turned furrows toward her husband. When he saw her, he halted the mule and met her halfway. She reached up to him, caressed his cheek, and handed him the canteen. He took a long swig, handed it back, and gave her a hug. They stood together while he pointed in several directions, no doubt explaining how big the garden would be and what he planned to plant there. The girl wife nodded, lifted the toddler toward him, and he took her, held her up, and pointing around as he'd done earlier, talked to the child, 
whose eyes never left his face, <coughs> a little hand upon his cheek. He passed her back, and his wife settled the infant on her right hip, gave him the canteen, and pointed at the plow. He turned and hung it on the plow handle. They were talking the whole time, but Maria couldn't hear what they were saying. She shook her head. If I kill him, the wife will be desperate out here all alone. Could starve. Killing him would mean killing three more people, the wife, the toddler, and the unborn child. Maria laid the gun down. I can't do it. I'll spare him for her sake. But if he's a good, uh, but if he's uh, good to her, why was he so hateful toward my daughter? Why attack her, rape her? She covered her face in her hands, thinking. It's the color of Amelia's skin. She's dark-skinned, therefore subhuman, a thing to be used and exploited. I could kill him for that, but I won't. Killing him would pull me down to his level. All right, I'll spare him for, this, for the sake of his wife and babies. So Amelia then waits for over a month until her next period comes. Uh, and also she waits for over a month for her injuries to heal. Then she decides she's going to go and confess to the, to the, uh, to the village priest, of course, the village of Vihar de San Antonio. So she is in the confessional at this point. She began telling her story obliquely about a man named Jedediah Crow, who three years ago had almost caused a riot at the Fandango. Yes, I remember the incident. Go on. He was cursing us Mexicanos, and as Senor Austin took him away, he said something to me. What did he say? I knew even less English then than I do now. It was something dirty, I think. Refugio, Father Refugio cleared his throat. Then you must have enticed him in your traje typico, your party dress. Emilia drew back from the grill in surprise. But Padre, we were all in party dresses. The priest waved a hand. Never mind, that was three years ago. Tell me what happened since. Emilia took a deep breath. On looking down, she saw she was wringing her hands. A little over a month ago, he, she choked and then cleared her throat. He raped me, Padre. Raped you? Tell me how that happened. You were with him, I suppose. No, he grabbed me from behind. Emilia told Father Refugio how Jedediah punched her in the mouth threw her on the ground, held her down with a foot on her chest, how she had tried to kick him. The priest, leaning forward with avid interest, questioned her closely and forced her to reveal all the sordid details. No one came to help me, Padre. God abandoned me. God never abandons any of us, my daughter. I'm truly sorry you had to suffer such a brutal attack. Are you with child? No, Padre. Mother and I came here today to pray and thank Our Lady for interceding on my behalf, to thank her that I will not have to bear that monstrous child. 
Do you wish to confess anything else? No, Padre. The rape that I was abandoned by everyone, even God, is what I brought is what brought me to you. But now you know that despite everything, God has shown you mercy. Therefore, he exists and cares for you. But he didn't stop the rape in the first place. We all must go through trials in this life, my child. This exchange was going nowhere. She would end it. Oh, I suppose so, Padre. Very well. Say your act of contrition, Emilia. She obeyed, and Padre Refugio then told her what her penance would be. I'll not prescribe a penance in direct connection with the rape, my child. However, even unknowingly, you surely did something to entice that man. All women are guilty as daughters of Eve of luring men astray. Keep that in mind and be more aware of your actions, young lady. Now go home and say a full rosary and read the book of Job. It teaches that no matter what hardships are inflicted upon you in this world, you must never give up trusting and loving God. He intoned the final prayer. Emilia responded mechanically, and when he stood up to go, she knew he, she was dismissed. She stalked down the aisle, angry and frustrated. The priest's mind had been made up even before she told her story. His words, you were with him, I suppose, echoed in her mind. No matter how horrendous the attack had been, according to this priest, she, she, not the attacker, was the guilty one as a daughter of Eve. And so that is as much of the story of rape Amazing. <laughs> as I will impart to my listeners today. So you may ask, why did I have to use such a brutal scene in my novel? Well, first of all, because I wanted to illustrate that the incoming Anglo population was not all polite and law-abiding like Stephen Austin's, Stephen Austin and his 300 settlers. They, like their impresario, which was Stephen Austin's title as leader of those uh, 300 families, uh, it's not just 300 settlers, it's 300 families of settlers. Uh, they, like their impresario, accepted the law of their new land, Mexico, where they were now living. In Mexico, not the USA. The US at that time only reached from the Atlantic to a little beyond the Mississippi River. Austin's group obeyed the laws of Mexico. The dominant language was Spanish, so they learned Spanish. Slaves were illegal in, Me in Mexico, so they had brought none. The religion was Roman Catholic, and they were required to convert. They did. Other immigrants, especially filibusteros, filibusters, like Jedediah Crow, did not obey any of those laws and treated the native people of Texas as inferior usurpers of the lands that they had just seized from them. They balked at, at learning a so-called barbaric language. They were Catholic in name only and continued their own religious or atheistic practices. As for slaves, since southwestern Texas is swampy and humid, very like Louisiana, cotton was the only crop they could, uh, they could profitably grow. 
They got around the log and slavery by registering their slaves as indentured servants and brought them in wholesale to hoe and pick their cotton. After the Battle of the Alamo in 1836, Texas declared itself a republic independent from Mexico. And just short of 10 years later, the United States took over the government and declared Texas a state. Atrocities were committed. The new Anglo inhabitants of the town of Victoria, for example, drove out all Spanish-speaking inhabitants and made the town an all-white precinct. Their slaves did not count as fully human, of course, and so they they didn't count when you were when you were uh, n numbering the white people. <laughs> In that process, the dispossessed people were simply turned out on the road, if lucky or were gunned down if they refused to leave. None of this is taught in Texas schools. And now, as in Florida, critical race theory is illegal here. No school or university can teach it, and that means teaching the actual history of Texas is legally taboo here for fear of making students uncomfortable. When teachers and parents know that most children truly learn and remember lessons when they are indeed uncomfortable, my goal for this book is to clarify Texas history. An appendix at the end of the book provides a five-page summary of Texas's actual history. In the novel itself, I strive to portray life as it really happened and to demonstrate that life and governance in this Mexican province was as civilized and efficient as anywhere else on the frontier of this country or of this I should say this uh, land that is now this country. I fear that it would be banned from school uh, classrooms for both reasons. It contains a raw rape scene and it teaches critical race theory. Although when I wrote it, I had not even heard the term. And so um, I will now uh, ask for any questions you might have after all this well let me let me make a, a comparison let me make a uh, a statement rather than than questions and then uh, you know maybe you could uh, comment on that but the the Anne Frank example that we started out with that of course is uh, is is ridiculously being banned and and someone is uh, you know someone is being fired for uh, for having children read it, and uh, you know, it, to to me, it's outrageous. And what they're doing is they're penalizing they're penalizing the truth, um, not only on the subject of of the Holocaust or hiding uh, their family from from getting uh, exterminated. Basically, uh, the family is hiding in order not to be exterminated by the Nazis, by Hitler and his, uh, you know, his historically um, uh, brutal people, mm -hmm. right? And uh, they're going to, um, their fear is that they're going to be taken to a concentration camp and, and be exterminated, and they were right. And to me, the Diary of, of Anne Frank is one of the most important works of literature that uh, that we've ever had, and and uh, in a sense, um, because of its uniqueness, uh, its its statement, its uh, its place in history, 
and making the historic statement. What you wrote is is similar, and again, it's it's fiction, and we we should point that out. But it's only fiction in in the sense that you don't have the details of of actual events. But I guarantee you, that is an event that occurred in uh, in our country's history by oh, yes. by a monster, you know, by a monster who was was there raping a woman and the uh, the woman when going to uh confess i mean i i can't even believe that uh, that that that's the term but it's the term you use and whatever but uh, she's confessing her rape and uh, uh you know to me it just doesn't uh, you know uh, you're a victim when you're when you're a rape victim you you are not to blame in any sense of uh, of the word the the priest was uh, was questioning her what she wore did she wear her party dress um, what did she act provocatively you were with this man um, and and blaming the victim in a sense what the what the school what the authorities that that fired the uh, that fired the uh, the teacher for and if I have my facts wrong uh, just correct me but fired the teacher for uh, assigning Anne Frank is is basically blaming blaming the victim there for what she did and uh, for Anne Frank a young woman to be as open and again it's a diary it's a very personal uh, a personal uh, thought process uh, for her to examine her own sexuality in the midst of trying to keep her herself and her family trying to keep her and the rest of the family alive is is one of the most honest and uh, and brutally truthful uh, statements you could have in life, and for us to see behind that curtain, for us to be allowed and have the privilege to see behind that curtain, where uh, a young woman fighting and fearing for her life still is uh, is is responding to her own growth, her own personal growth, her own sexuality. And having the the same curiosity that that let's face it, I mean any family, any female family member uh, would, uh, or any friend or any anybody just about uh, normally would have it would have those same concerns. Yet we're blaming the victim. We're blaming the person who's giving us this privilege to see behind the the closed doors there, and we're treating Anne Frank. As if it's um, Hustler magazine, you know, or or some, I, I wouldn't even say uh, Playboy because Playboy is, is a much different, but uh, like hardcore porn, pornography, where uh, we're treating. If we allow this to happen, then we're 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 using one of or we're viewing one of the great works of literature, which is uh, one of the most honest pieces of literature because. She never expected us to read it. She was writing it to herself. And we get the privilege to look beyond that, behind that curtain. And to, uh, you know, to me, it's it's just, uh, it's a gift. It's a gift from the gods that, uh, uh, that we were allowed to, uh, uh, to, to witness what a family was experiencing during the most horrific time in... Um, you know, basically, uh, it, the the 20th century. I mean, it's the most horrific, uh, 
the time period that you could possibly imagine and the moment. Having said that, getting back to your uh, your um, depiction of the young woman and what, what the Mexicans were, uh, were experiencing and how brutal this was, um, the, the priest is defending, uh, de- basically defending a rapist, uh, de- defending yeah. somebody who, who just took away, not basically, he's a- outright defending a rapist and blaming the victim. And this is, uh, this is something we have to stop doing as a society. And it could start by, uh, we could start by refusing to allow book bans and, and teachers to be f- uh, fired for ridiculous reasons. Uh, a- anyway, I, I don't know if you're getting my gist, but there is a, yes. there is a comparison to be made in the two stories. Yes, exactly. And of course, this Dobbs decision that was made last year by the Supreme Court has placed women back in the same position that Amelia was in, um, as less than human, really. Um, because uh, whatever the man does, if he rapes her, she's going to have to carry the, the baby to term. Yes. Uh, if she happens to be pregnant um, from the rape. Um, and and there's no recourse. She's not to have an abortion, according to that decision. Uh, of course, they actually are leaving it up to the states, but most of these states uh, are going back to uh, to rules and regulations that were made up in the 19th century. Uh, and so they uh, are place, placing uh, victims, women, female victims, exactly in the same uh, situation that Amelia would have been in had she been impregnated by uh, by Jedediah Crow. Uh, she was very, very lucky uh, not to have, uh, have become pregnant. Um, but um, I did not realize, because I wrote the book before uh, the Dobbs decision came down, I didn't realize uh, what a, a painful situation women um, who are un, unwittingly pregnant or uh, are forced to be pregnant uh, would now be in. Uh, now that this book has, is out, uh, it means even more to, uh, to women uh, than it did when I wrote it. And another thing, the fact that Anne Frank, to go back to uh, to the beginning and the most important uh, point in this talk, uh, the fact that she died in Bergen-Belsen uh, shocked me because I hadn't remembered that. Uh, and my uh, my husband's father uh, was killed there, was murdered in Bergen-Belsen. Um, he managed to get his wife. Um, he, he, he was forced to sell his property or else it was seized from him entirely, but he had enough money left to get a ticket for his wife, a visa from the American embassy and a ticket to New York. Um, so he got her out of the country, but he himself was sacrificed in that same concentration camp. So uh, so the story of Anne Frank uh, cuts very close to home here uh, with me. Wow. Uh, just a wonderful job, Doc, on the, uh, on the writing and also uh, the parallel between uh, the, uh, the, the two stories, the, the diary of Anne Frank and, and, uh, and really the, uh, the settlement, if you want to call, of, uh, of, of Texas. 
and uh, what we've done and and your other your other point um and and again i would urge anyone listening to this and if they've uh, picked up your your point uh, ab uh about the uh the rape victim being uh forced to uh potentially uh raise a child that was uh that was conceived in in, in a crime and uh, conceived in rape um they could think of and, and again, not that it's the same thing, but they can think of Millie, uh, uh, the uh, th the woman uh, afflicted with the hunchback uh, that you drove to, uh, I think, believe Minnesota, uh, in order to uh, for her to get an abortion, knowing that the child um, who was uh, who was who would have been spawned from, um, uh, I, I believe, a man with Down syndrome, and and herself with all her physical uh limitations uh that uh that she made that decision and you young florence uh made the decision to go there but um uh, again it's just uh it, you you've hit on so many heavy subjects uh here uh and actually just about every week you hit on a, a pretty heavy subject and uh i i hope everyone uh got as much out of this as i did um but what a what a gripping uh, passage you read and um, just uh, just wonderful just wonderful doc uh, thank you very much for sharing you're most welcome <laughs> dr. Florence by Weinberg is the author of 16 books a 17th on the way and uh, please binge listen to everything that we've been doing she is our host each and every week Frank McKay very proud uh, especially after something like this uh, very proud to be her co-pilot uh, each and every week. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on The Florence Weinberg Show.